if you haven't been around, I want you to know that our series is The Good Life, and there it is, right on the front of your worship God. And what we're doing is re-envisioning the suburban narrative of the good life through the story of God. And so each week we're taking a new assumption about the good life in the suburban narrative, and we're re-envisioning it in the story of God. And I've been saying that the goal of the series is uh, encouragement, that you would be encouraged that you can have the good life in the life that you have now. And I've got to tell you that the assumption that we're taking this morning is one that lives deeply within my own soul. And I can't think of a more important assumption for us to re-envision as a community and find a way really to offer our communities, to offer a lost and broken world, because this is one where perhaps the biblical narrative and the suburban narrative diverge the most. And I will also say that uh, I think it is very, very good news. If you really take to heart what we're talking about today, I think that you will find that it is very, very good news. You will hear, really, the very heart of God's love and compassion and provision for you and for me. So, uh, here we go. Uh, But let me say one more thing. I also anticipate that there will be some resistance in the room to the message that I'm sharing this morning. It's just the nature of things. It's the nature of the topic. Uh, Some of you are going to go about midway through, why is he talking about this? Some of you are going to go, well, this message is for somebody else. I've already got this down. Some of you are just going to say, I am not sure about this at all, but it's only natural. And I think it's the reason why we really need this message this morning. So, let me just say, uh, what we're going to talk about today is the assumption related to the scope of the good life. What is the scope of the good life? Because I think in the suburban narrative, people assume the scope of life is from the day that you're born until the day that you die. Is that not true? The scope of life is from the day that you're born until the day that you die. Now, that's only natural, And it's only natural that we would become settlers in this life, the life between the dots. It's the life that's in front of us. It's the life that we see ourselves fully in. But it's also true that it's really easy to become disappointed with the life that you're living between the dots. Because the suburban narrative of that life means you've got to achieve certain things and have certain things, accomplish certain things. And what if you don't, you know, have the house and the 2.5 kids and the SUV? And what if you don't have the career that's all that? And what if you don't ever get married? Or what if you don't ever have children? Or what if you don't ever achieve and accumulate and Get what you think really makes for the good life in this life. There's a lot of pressure, I think, if you live 
as we live as settlers if we see the scope of the good life as the life only between the dots, the day that we're born and the day, and the day we die. The other thing is, it's very hard uh, with that vision because we still have this matter of what do we do about death. You know, the problem with this vision of the good life is it ends at death. And people are dying all the time. And nobody seems to have an answer for the fact that people are dying all the time. And it seems to me that in the, sub the suburbs, you know, we sort of move our old people off into hidden places. We don't even see cemeteries. A funeral procession on a busy Tuesday is like this unwelcome intrusion into real life. Funeral homes are sequestered away into these little brick buildings that are, seem sort of sanitized. We don't really know what to do with the life beyond that last dot. And yet people are dying all the time. I happen to be reading this week uh, of the death of 33-year-old Stephen Powell. And some of you might either read this online or you get the actual physical newspaper. And Stephen Powell, it, it's this article, Man Gets 68 Years in Prison for kill, Killing Father of Five. Stephen Powell is a 33-year-old father of five. And he, as the story goes, went into a convenience store. He'd only been married for eight and a half months. And he went into a convenience store at Hanover and East Nine Mile Roads here in Henrico County. And he was in line with another guy. And when he left the store, that other guy went out and shot him through the window of his car. And when the other guy asked why I shot him, he said, I don't know, I guess he just looked at me wrong. You know, there's so many uh, deaths and there's so many early deaths and senseless deaths. The death that has really pressed in on me this week that some of you will know was the death of Gay Plaque. How many of you are aware of the death of Gay Plaque this week? Uh, Gay Plaque is somebody that I knew, and maybe many of us knew. Gay actually was a part of this church community in the, in the very beginning of things. And she lives in a home, she lived alone in Wellesley, not too far from here. And by all accounts, Gay was uh, being treated for mental illness, and she had recently been hospitalized, and her doctor asked the police to make a welfare visit to her home this week. And to make a long story short, the police entered her home, and she probably was frightened. Her brother thinks that she was probably frightened because the police were going to send her back to the hospital, force her to go there. So as the story goes, and there's body cam evidence, uh, she came out and she was wielding an axe that had a two-foot handle, and in self-defense, the both police shot and killed her. And so, uh, and this is uh, the kind of thing that is happening uh, more than we would ever wish or imagine. And yet in the suburbs, I'm not sure that the narrative that we all are living in for the scope of life really has an answer for us. And so I will often say, I think the main question 
that people that we know need to answer about life is what will we do about death? That's the main question about life is what will we do about death because it's a question that nobody seems to have an answer for. It's certainly not one that's happening in the public square. I think it's true in the suburbs that we think we can buy or manage or control or think our way about out of just about everything. And yet we can't buy or manage or control or think our way out of this one. So this is the setup. In the suburbs, the scope of life is in is 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 between the two dots on the line. But what we're going to learn today in the story of God is the scope of the good life is life eternal. So what I want to ask you to do is look at John 3.16 with me. There are a number of passages in your worship guide, and I'll refer to most of them, plus some that aren't mentioned here. But you might have page 4 open. And this is a very famous passage to many of us. Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus who was a religious man. But Nicodemus is nonetheless searching for God, and this is what Jesus says, said to him. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, we really don't know if Nicodemus recognized how dramatically different this offer of salvation was compared to the one that the narrative that he had been living. But we do have reason to believe that eventually Nicodemus did. See, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he lived in a world of right behaviors and good intentions. And so the way he hoped to earn his way to God was through right behaviors and good intentions. So Jesus comes into his world, and he says, "Uh, I want to offer you something uh, radically different from what you've been offered thus far. And he said, I want to offer you, I myself will be the offer of God's gift of his acceptance and favor. And he says, this offer will be the chief expression of God's love for us. And it's a gift that we can receive simply through faith in his son. And the way Jesus describes this gift is eternal life. Now, I think a lot of times we will hear eternal life, and people don't get all that excited about eternal life. Uh, I think a lot of people think, you know, if I were God and I were saving people from something, I'd save them from something way better than that, or I'd give them something way better than that. I'd give them something more immediate. I'd give them like a better job or a better life. I'd, I'd give them something that they viscerally know that they want in the here and now. But Jesus says God so loved the world that he gave, it's a free gift, free gift of God's grace, his son. And the story would play out that his son would go to the cross and become the atonement for sin. And through faith in him, we would have life eternal. So why is this the best news ever? Why is life eternal 
the very best news that we could imagine and the thing that we desperately need to, re, to insert into our vision of the good life. Well, let's start with this. God's promise of eternal life addresses our fear of death. He addresses our fear of death. Eternal life extends the prospect of the good life to life beyond the grave. Now, some of you know the story of Lazarus told in John 11. And you'll know that Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And Lazarus died, and he not only died, but he was good and dead. He had been in the tomb for four days. And so Jesus was summoned, and he goes to Lazarus. And the first thing Jesus says to Lazarus, who's good and dead, is he says, come out of that tomb. And then what is described is Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he's still draping, he's still draped in his grave claws. The grave claws symbolized Humanity's bondage to death. And until Jesus' arrival, Lazarus and every other person on the faith of the earth was utterly powerless in the face of death. But Jesus says to Lazarus, He says, Take those grave cloths, He says to those standing there, Take those grave cloths off of him. And his point was this powerful symbolism of you don't have to fear death anymore. And so this has some powerful implications. You know, when one day uh, you're going to die, I'm going to die. And when we die, you know, we'll, we'll be in a casket and there'll be people around and they'll be going, you know, oh, you know, uh, poor Nelson, he's now dead. But am I dead? See, Jesus is going to, Jesus is, the point of Jesus' picture, word picture, is that I'll be, I'll be gone, but I won't be dead. I'll be gone, but I won't be dead. And so Jesus says to Lazarus' sister Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says something that we really, really have to take to heart. He says, he adds, do you believe this? So he's asking you today, do you, do you believe? Now, I know everybody hasn't put their faith in Jesus. But if you have, uh, the inv- and the invitation is there for you to put your faith in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, do you believe that when you die, you won't die. You'll never die. It's, it's an amazing prospect because left to our inclinations, all of us will fear death. Now, this is a point where some of you will say, well, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I've grown in Christ and to the point where I don't fear death. Well, everybody fears death. Why do I say that? Well, it's right here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh, and this is in your worship God also, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, meaning Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So do you hear this? It doesn't matter if you're, 
you know, 18 years old or 16 years old, your whole life is out in front of you. There is inside of the natural man, the natural human spirit, a fear of death. It's only natural that there would be. And one of the reasons Jesus came was to liberate us from this fear. Now, in the mid-1900s, uh, Ernst Becker was a prominent psychologist at Cal Berkeley. And in 1973, he published this book that won a Pulitzer Prize. And it's titled The Denial of Death. And in it, Becker argues that the fear of death is at the root of every other fear. Let me read you just one excerpt. Becker's, Becker writes, Therefore, in normal times... Oh, sorry. He says, For behind the sense of insecurity in the face of danger, behind the sense of discouragement and depression, there always lurks the basic fear of death. A fear which undergoes most complex elaborations and manifestations and manifests itself in many indirect ways. No one is free of the fear of death. The anxiety neuroses, the various phobic states, even a considerable number of depressive suicidal states and many schizophrenias amply demonstrate the ever-present fear of death which becomes woven into the major conflicts of the given psychopathological conditions. We may take for granted that the fear of death is always present in our mental functioning. Now, Becker, by God's common grace, is just apprehending what Scripture says in Hebrews 2. That we're all in bondage to our fear of death, and it's a bigger deal than any of us thinks. So, you know, how would we recognize that fear today? Well, if any of you has ever lost anyone you love, you know that death is enormous. It is my description of it is, is that death is a brute beast. Death is enormous. Death is the most powerful thing that we come up against. In your bottom bar, the Apostle Paul says death is an enemy. And it's the fiercest, strongest, most powerful enemy. Because death is irreversible. It feels that way. And it's so um, utterly final. And so we avert our eyes. But death is still there. So why wouldn't we fear death? It's, you know, so, so enormous and so, so with us. Well, let me read one more excerpt from the denial of death. Becker says one more thing. He says, therefore, in normal times, we move about actually with ever, without ever believing in our own death. So what he's saying now is, is that uh, what tends to happen is, is there's in, in, and I would say in the suburban narrative, there's one big massive denial of death. We can't bear it. We can't bear death in our souls. It's too much. And so he says, in normal times, we move about actually without ever believing in our own death as if we fully believed in our own corporeal immortality. We're intent on mastering death. A man will say, of course, that he knows he will die someday, but he does not really care. He's having a good time with living. And he does not think about death and does not care to bother about it. But this is purely an intellectual, verbal admission. The effect 
of fear, the affect of fear is repressed. That's what Becker helps us see, which is the message of, really, of the scripture, but of Hebrews 2. And so, Jesus is coming into our souls, and he is saying, let me free you from the fear that is the fear that grips every human heart, and it's the fear of death. And so he comes to Martha and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even if you die, you won't die. Now listen, I know that uh, some of you are young, and some of you have your whole life out in front of you, and you're thinking, this doesn't really pertain to me. But here's the thing, Um, we all think life is long, and so these early or senseless deaths become these aberrations we feel because we think life is long and secure. Scripture, on the other hand, says that life is short and fragile. In your worship guide, you'll see see this uh, from James. It's James 4, verses 14 and 15. And James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? And then he gives his image. Scripture gives the image for every life in this room. He says, your life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes and the call to worship, we, hear, we heard that we are a wildflower in the field, here today, gone tomorrow. It's actually the message in Luke 11, where, the, where, where Jesus really condemns the man for storing up his wealth and building bigger barns. Was it that the man was greedy, that he, it was wrong to want it all for himself? That wasn't it at all. Jesus said, this very night your life will be demanded of you. His point was, life is short. It's just an unwise investment strategy. And so that's this other piece that the scripture is trying to press in. And it helps us understand um, the beauty, really, of, of eternal lives. So, listen. The, the point here is, is we have a fear in the natural inside of us that will dictate everything else. Now, we try to push it back, and so we wear our hip clothes, and we all think we're younger, we look younger than we really are, and we color our hair, and we might even do a little plastic surgery, or there are a lot of things that we do, and we, we're pushing back on that fear as if that'll work. And, and think, even if you're like, a, like a, you know, a mother of young children, why is it that mothers of young children say, well, the days are long, but the years start flying by? They're saying, you might be a 28-year-old mother of a 3-year-old right now, and just yesterday, that 3-year-old was in diapers, and in a blink of an eye, that three-year-old will be graduating from college. And then you'll be the mother of the bride standing there when she gets married. So nobody, regardless of the age you are, sort of escapes that the narrative that 
Scripture is trying to lay out to re-envision the suburban narrative about scope is that God in His grace has provided a good life that is beyond the grave. And we can celebrate that and we above all are meant to place our trust in Christ both in life and in death. So here's the beauty of what God has done for us. Now again, if salvation were left up to me, I'd have probably made it something else. I'd have made people rich or successful or beautiful or handsome or something like that. But God in His wisdom made salvation eternal life. So Scripture says... Our problem is our sin, and the wages of sin is death. And so Christ went to the cross to atone for death, atone for sin, and then he went into the tomb for three days to stare down death. And when he emerged, he resurrected. He was the first of many resurrections. We too will be resurrected with him. So let me just say one last thing before we move on. This, this story, as some of you would know, is, is somewhat autobiographical for me. I don't really know how to preach this sermon, but it's a sermon that really lives down in my soul. And I think the reason it lives in my soul was I lost my first wife at age 31 from a terrible cancer. And when Lacey died... I felt that I sort of stepped over and had one foot here and one foot in the life to come. And there was a profound sadness at her loss, and I grieved because death is a brute beast, and I grieved for five years. But there was a profound gladness. And I can only explain that the gladness came from the reality that what Jesus said is the truth. That He did come to conquer sin and death. That when you die in Christ, you don't die. The good life is just opening up at that point. So that's really the the first thing, is that the scope of the good life extends beyond the grave. Well, there's one more thing, and this is perhaps is even more important. Eternal life, I spent a while this week really studying this, the, this, these words, eternal life. And every scholar that I studied made a point to say that eternal life understood in the ancient Near East and in biblical context has more to say with the quality of life than it does the quantity. So yes, there's this element of eternal life is a longer life. But here's the truth. Nobody gets excited about a longer life. That's why nobody's excited about heaven. Nobody's excited about longer life because you think all that is more life the same, of the same life that I have now. And that, that doesn't excite anybody. But what's happening here in the promise and salvation of eternal life is a new quality of life. And it has a lot to do with uh, a new age. So the word for eternal in the Greek is 
Ionion. That's the transliteration, Ionion. And it's a word that, from which we get the word eon. And so it's telling us that we're stepping into another eon. We're stepping into an eon uh, where we fully experience the fullness of Christ. So let me back up one more time. So the other thing scholars say is that eternal life is not really about the passing of time. You step out of time. Clock time is really a manifestation of death. The passing of time is a manifestation of death. Clock time is how you measure aging. The aging of your body, the aging of the calendar, it's a manifestation of death. Eternal life, the eon, the ion of Christ, is about the eternal present. And so I think the best way that we have for beginning to glimpse heaven is let's say that you go on a vacation and maybe you're at the beach or in the mountains or you're someplace and have you ever been on a vacation and you'll be like fully immersed in something and you know you get up and you have your coffee and then you do whatever you do but what is blessed about vacation is, is you step out of the tyranny of time, right? And so you're out on the beach in the afternoon, and you don't know whether it's 1.30 or 4.15, right? You ever had that feeling? You don't know if it's 1.30 or 4.15. That's a little foretaste of heaven. You've stepped out. You've stepped out. See, heaven is, the, the eon of the Lord is not so much best understood like a river along which we pass, it's more like a pool into which we are immersed. And this is, uh, and here's the thing that I think is the best news of all. What we should understand, Jesus means in John 3.16, when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have this, is it is God's ultimate expression that he wants to be with us forever. So you may feel, oh, I don't know if God rejects me or he receives me. In John 17.3, Jesus is praying to the Father, and this is what he prays. He says, now this is eternal life. Ready? Jesus' own words. This is eternal life, that they know you, he's praying to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So do you see what the Scripture is saying to us? Eternal life is not about time. It's not even about a place. It's about a person. 
ultimately what we long for most is God himself. And so what is this new quality of life in eternal life? It's knowing God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's intimacy. It's nearness to God. What is eternal life? It's the fullness of God's presence, which means the fullness of joy. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about joy. I think one of the reasons that we fear that heaven will be boring is we think we'll, like, it's about the passing of time and we'll run out of things to do, and we are used to only sort of measuring experience in terms of pleasure. So in terms of pleasure, if you have a spoonful of lobster bisque, you'll enjoy it, but the 50th spoonful will make you sick. Well, joy, because it has pleasure decreases with the experience of it, but joy increases with the experience of it. And so we're told that we will have in heaven the fullness of the presence of God and the fullness of joy. And so what you can imagine is that your joy expands and your joy expands and your joy expands. It gets bigger and bigger. And that's all. That's all uh, because we are in the presence of God and the fullness of Christ. So to close, listen. 250 years ago, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on what it would be like to experience eternal life, to see God and know God for eternity. And he ponders whether that would grow dull and boring. And he compares the joy of God's presence to this artesian well or to a fountain. Artesian well is one that um, has an endless supply. And Edwards writes, He says, the fountain that supplies the joy and delight which the soul has in seeing God is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It doth both but take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more of the beauty and loveliness of God, but it will never, ever exhaust the fountain. To God be the glory for the grace that he has given us in the good life where we trust his son both in this life and the life to come. Amen.